Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, Today we're continuing in our series on the life of Christ, which we've entitled AD 30, talking about Jesus' limits. It's interesting because last week we said limitless, so yes, that's intentional. Sometimes the obvious is not so obvious. Some of you have heard of Ken Jennings. Anyone know who Ken Jennings is? Any Jeopardy fans here? All right, a few of you. Good job. In the end, after all the mind-bendingly tough answers like Leif Erikson, Johannes Kepler, George III, and Ecuador, and the clue for Ecuador was a Spanish dictionary defines it as circulo maximo que aquista de los polos de la tierra, that's Ecuador, I'm sure I butchered it. It was a plain old accounting firm that finally brought down Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy champion, ending the longest winning streak in game show history. The answer was, most of this firm's 70,000, this is a U.S. question, but you'll know it, I think, most of this firm's 70,000 seasonal white-collar employees work only four months a year. What is? Good job. All right. On November 30th, Mr. Jennings responded, what is FedEx? Well, his opponent, Nancy Zerg, a realtor from Ventura, California, answered correctly, what is H&R Block? And so after 75 shows, 2,700 correct responses, and more than $2.5 million in winnings, Mr. Jennings, a software engineer from Salt Lake City who became a smiling, brainy pop culture hero during his winning streak, finally put down his buzzer. He missed one of the easiest answers out of 2,700 he got right. Sometimes the obvious isn't so obvious. Cary Grant, for those of you who are under 40, Cary Grant was a movie star once, as was Rock Hudson, so I'm going to use an illustration that predates you. Cary Grant once told how he was walking along a street and met a fellow whose eyes locked onto him with excitement, and the man said, wait a minute, you're, you're, I know you are, don't tell me, um, Rock Hudson, no, you're, Grant thought he'd help him, so he finished the man's sentence, Cary Grant, and the fellow said, no, that's not it. Your so there was Cary Grant, one of the most famous movie stars of his generation, identifying himself with his own name, but this fellow had somebody else in mind, and he wouldn't believe it, because sometimes the obvious is not so obvious. How about Elvis Presley? You've all heard of him, I think. Elvis Presley used to frequent Little Thompson Steakhouse. He was good friends with the owner who used to give him free food before he was famous. One night when he was at the height of his fame, the steakhouse held the ultimate Elvis Presley impersonator contest. So all kinds of dudes are there, you know, dressed up like Elvis. They got the beard, they got the voice, you know. Love me tender. Anyway, a large crowd arrived, including Elvis Presley himself. Elvis decided to take part in the Elvis Presley impersonator contest. So he sat quietly in the back, and he's biding his time. Finally, he says confidently to Lil, I'm going to mash this. She was worried the place would go crazy when everyone realized it was him. There was no need. He sang Love Me Tender to polite applause and came in third place. (laughs) 
Sometimes the obvious is not so obvious. And unfortunately, Jesus of Nazareth experienced exactly that same thing. He was and is God. He demonstrated it in a variety of ways over three years. And he wasn't recognized for it, even when he owned it and acknowledged it. Our title this week is Jesus Limits. Last week it was limitless, and yes, they are contradictory. So last week we talked about these four miracles that the gospel writers grouped together intentionally to demonstrate the power and authority that Jesus has over all realms of our experience. So there were these four miracles that probably happened over a 24 to 48 hour period of time. It begins when he, he leaves Capernaum with his disciples. They go out on a boat and they hit this squall, this storm that takes place in the middle of the night on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples recognize their lives are in danger, they're going to die, and then Jesus stands in the boat and commands the wind and the waves to cease, and they do. And the point is that Jesus has power over the forces of nature. They land on the other side in Gentile territory. A demon-possessed man come towards them, and, and a, a person who had been chained and had broken chains because the power of these demonic influences within him. The name was Legion, which meant many. It was a term used of 6,000 Roman soldiers. This demon recognized who Jesus was and said, don't punish us before the time. Demon, the demons were cast out of those men. There were actually two of them because Jesus has power and authority over the forces of evil. They went back to Capernaum and they're met there by a man named Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler. His child was, his 12-year-old daughter was, was almost dead. She was deathly ill. He begs Jesus. He's on his knees begging Jesus to come to his home. Jesus starts heading towards his home and a woman with an issue of blood, she had never stopped bleeding since she became a young woman. She had spent all of her money to solve this problem. And now she's in her mid-20s in an era where girls are married from 13 to 15 and, and she doesn't have a normal life that she wanted, that she longed for. And she goes through the crowd as Jesus is headed to Jairus' house. She touches Jesus' robe and she's immediately healed. And the point is that Jesus has power over the forces of sickness. He continues on his way to Jairus' house. The daughter has now died. He raises her from the dead. And in these four miracles, we see that Jesus has power over the forces of nature, the forces of evil, the forces of sickness, the forces of death. Matthew throws in a story about Jesus' power and authority to forgive sins. The point is, Jesus can do anything. He has no limits. He is God, and he is limitless. And then this passage that we're going to look at today, which says the opposite. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 6. Interestingly, in Mark, this is immediately after those four miracles. Mark chapter 6, on page 31, in the Bible near you, in the New Testament, Mark 6, verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, so Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Now, this is hometown, remember. Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? 
Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Isn't that an interesting verse? He could do no miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Jesus' limits begin when we refuse to follow the evidence to its logical conclusion. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. Jesus is stopped in his powers by external issues. Jesus is now officially famous. He has done countless miracles in public settings. It's not private anymore. He's no secret. He has virtually no privacy. Wherever he goes, he's thronged by crowds, hoping to listen to him, and many bringing their sick relatives and sick friends to hopefully be healed. Word has spread. He is trending top five on all internet searches, on Twitter, on Snapchat, all of the common tools of the day. He is famous, and he's popular. And it's time to go home. He's been in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go inland a little bit to the south, to Nazareth, his hometown. Maybe rest, reconnect with mom, brothers, sisters. And so he goes to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is viewed as his hometown. We know he's born in Bethlehem, but they went immediately almost from Bethlehem up to Nazareth, and that's where he was raised. So Nazareth is viewed as his hometown, not his place of birth, but his hometown. And so he's a young man. It's time to go to church on the weekend. It's the Sabbath, so it's Saturday, which was their church day, synagogue day. So he went to the synagogue. He would have been asked by the person we would probably identify as the synagogue ruler, just like Jairus. The miracle he had performed just before this for Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, that person would have you know, been responsible for the order of service, the teacher in the synagogue. So he's probably asked by the synagogue ruler to be a guest speaker. And so he is. But he does not receive the reception that he is expecting. This audience struggled with Jesus. I mean, he was an amazing teacher, and they acknowledged it. We see it in the text. The miracles, the miracles that he's performed were well-documented. Some of them were private with his disciples, but many were public, and they knew it, and they comment on it. There were no surprises that Sabbath day service. They knew what Jesus was capable of. The problems preceded the service. And they were a combination of familiarity and contempt for Jesus. And in their minds, and this is sort of what they're saying, if I can paraphrase, as, as they recognize Jesus and they know his history, they know what he's capable of, they're literally sort of saying to themselves, we know this guy, he grew up here. I mean, didn't we buy a dining room set from him, honey? Didn't he give our boy a black eye in school? No, 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 just test, testing you there. Sinless, remember? All right. There was nothing special about him. We remember him as a child. We remember him as a teenager, a little bit quiet. 
So how can he just turn on the switch at 30 and become this famous individual who teaches like this and does these things and performs miracles? It makes no sense. And then there was this often misunderstood comment about his family origin. Isn't this the son of Mary? You know, don't we see his brothers here in synagogue and don't we see his sisters here? But the really interesting phrase is, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, many commentators believe this means that Joseph has died and Jesus is only connected to mom now. That is a lazy way out of this passage. Here's the problem. Mary and Joseph have at least six kids. I don't know if you have a Catholic background where there's a belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary, um, they would say these are cousins. But the clearest reading of the text is these are after Jesus, his natural brothers and sisters with Mary and Joseph. So Mary and Joseph have at least six other kids because four brothers are mentioned. And then it says sisters, plural, so there's at least two girls. This is a family of at least seven children. Joseph did not just disappear after Jesus' birth. Mary was not widowed young. In fact, we see Joseph in Jesus' life when he's 12 years old and they left him at church by accident. You ever do that with your kids? I think we did actually once. You know, you bring two vehicles to church and you're assuming the other parent has it and you come back a half an hour later and they're down with the nursery helper at the front, you know, like, yeah, thank you for coming back. We really enjoyed your child. He got left at church when he was 12. Even if Joseph had died sometime after that, 15 years ago, maybe a little longer, it's not likely that Jesus would be called the son of Mary because people weren't identified that way. In fact, in Luke, you'll find a parallel passage to this. Now, what's interesting about the life of Jesus, this is another time where Jesus is in Nazareth and he's being rejected similarly in the synagogue. And that time, there's other details. And so I'm not sure, and I'm not sure if we can be sure if there's two different events like this where he's speaking in the Nazareth synagogue and gets rejected, or if it's one and they just give different details. But in the Luke passage, actually, when they're talking about Jesus, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? They don't say the son of Mary. And in in that passage, by the time he's done preaching, they take him out to the edge of town on the edge of a cliff and they're trying to kill him. His hometown friends are now trying to kill him. And there they refer to him as Joseph's son. So when it says, isn't this the son of Mary, most likely it's a shot. Yeah, isn't this, yeah, not Mary and Joseph's son. Isn't this Mary's son, and we really don't know who daddy is? Remember when he was born? Remember the scandal? Remember how Joseph decided to marry her anyway? This was a reference to Jesus' past. It was a reference to his virgin birth, and a virgin birth they weren't buying, and they never forgot. In fact, in the book of John, you'll see some of Jesus' opponents eventually said to him when they were having a bad day, uh, we are not illegitimate children. There's a shot. See, people never forgot this about Jesus. They didn't have a normal father experience as a child. So in their minds, no matter what miracles or magic tricks, since he might be doing it by the power of Satan for all we know, no matter what miracles or magic tricks Jesus can pull off, to us he's just a kid with a questionable past, and the rest doesn't add up. You say, Paul, 
why assume that meeting? Why assume, why assume that meaning? Why, why go there? Why not just assume son of Mary, Joseph is dead? Well, not just because of the Luke passage, but because of how they responded. They took offense at him. Greek word skandalizomai, where we get our word scandal from. And what it means, one commentator put it this way, offended and repelled to the point of abandoning belief in the word or one's relation with Jesus. Offended and repelled to the point of abandoning belief in the word or one's relation with Jesus. See, they didn't just have a little weak faith in that experience. This was broken faith for many and weak faith for some. They struggled with Jesus. Even though all of the evidence was before them and they even acknowledged the evidence, they struggled with Jesus. And there was a proverb that described it, a proverb you would find in multiple cultures in that day. Jesus quoted it. He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. You know, and some of us have experienced that, you know. You're kind of a goof off as a teenager and you grow up and become a responsible adult and some of the relatives are like, yeah, I never saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, whoa. Yeah. You're kind of shocked on the upside there, buddy. That's what happened to Jesus. He knew it. And this is all happening in church. That's an exciting service. Think about it. I mean, that's an exciting service. Jesus goes to synagogue in Nazareth. In Luke 4, they're trying to kill him. Here, they're taking shots at him, calling him names about his birth story. That's an exciting church service. I hope there was a potluck afterwards. Keep it going. See, they couldn't see beyond their faith barriers. They heard the teaching. It was good. They knew about the miracles. Incredible. The evidence said that Jesus is more than a carpenter, more than a son of Mary, more than a child of Nazareth, more than a Messiah. The evidence says more than a Messiah because in their culture, the rabbis of their day did not read the Old Testament like we do on that one. They expected a Messiah that was not divine. God's hand would be on him, but he wouldn't be God himself. But this is more than a Messiah. Maybe God, but they just couldn't get there. Jesus' limits begin when we refuse to follow the evidence to its logical conclusion. Second, Jesus' limits, and this is the point, are largely defined by us. You and me. Now, this is an interesting thing I, I want to follow with you for a moment. You say, what do you mean, Paul? They, they didn't believe, so they're like unbelievers. You, you kind of said that. Well, I didn't exactly say that. I want you to think about the spiritual condition of the people in the synagogue at Nazareth. It would be really easy to say they're unbelievers because they're not believing in Jesus. But I, I think that's overly simple. This is a transition in salvation history. These were devout Jews. These people believed in the true God. These weren't like non-believers. These are all people who are in synagogue every week. They know their Old Testament. They've memorized vast portions of it. And the best way to describe them theologically, in my mind, even though you know, I'm not the Spirit of God, I don't know, but the best way to describe them in my mind would be they are devout Old Testament believers. 
looking for the Messiah. They just don't believe Jesus is the one. They didn't see Jesus as they should have. But I would not call them unbelievers. I would call them unbelievers as it relates to Jesus at that point. But they were like Old Testament believers looking for a Messiah. And so they just couldn't get it in their hearts to believe who Jesus could be. The result was a few healings. Really, I would say an off day statistically for Jesus. You know, he's normally like batting 800, and that day, 100. He's had a slump, a messianic slump. So is it true that God is limited? And how can that be? Well, here's how. The simple answer. God has chosen to work in and through people. And he rarely violates that principle. God has chosen to work in and through people. And in that sense, we limit him at times. God has given these people, us, free will. God has said that faith opens and closes the door of his activity. You say, where does God say that? Well, let me give you an example that Jesus gave a little bit later on in his life. I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. It's like trust in him, have faith in him, and I in you, like a branch in the vine. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. When we're connected to Jesus through faith, we can bear much fruit. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, he said that not long before he left the planet, and he wants us to understand that our faith connection to him is going to be how the kingdom of God in this world grows. It's still going to be him doing it, and we connect to him through faith. So the question is, what does my lack of faith and my free will cause God to leave on the table, undone. Philip Yancey sort of speaks to this. On the rise of Christianity in the global south, you get into Africa, South America, in particular countries or continents like that where Christianity is exploding and yet waning in many of the Western cultures, North America, Europe. He says this, as I travel, I've observed a pattern, a strange historical phenomena of God moving, moving geographically from the Middle East to Europe, to North America, to the developing world. And my theory is this. I love this. God goes where he's wanted. Isn't that an interesting statement? God goes where he's wanted. And where he's not wanted elements of the kingdom of heaven sort of dry up. God goes where he's wanted. Well, he wasn't wanted in Nazareth that day. 
And so Jesus could perform very few miracles there, except he healed a few people. And third, and this isn't the point of the passage, it's sort of an editorial comment. Even Jesus is surprised by the unbelief of those who've seen the evidence. You know, the point of the passage is how the lack of faith in Nazareth sort of limited what Jesus could do. That's the point. And, you know, and he comments about that in verse 4. Prophet is not without honor except in his own country. But this editorial comment that Mark throws in there is somebody who observed this. It's fascinating. It's like, I remember that day. I remember that day when Jesus got out of there. He was shocked. This is, this is the only time in Mark amazement is ascribed to Jesus. The only time in that gospel. He gets out of his hometown, he's like, seriously? Really? Are you kidding me? Didn't expect that? The applications, the questions surrounding this are, are actually quite obvious, but not easily answered. Do we hold God back, and how much? Doesn't God have a plan that the Bible describes that takes place no matter what? As God is the sovereign God, and you know the Bible says every hair in your head is numbered, and for most of you, not for me, but every hair in your head is numbered, and God knows you know, when the sparrow falls. and all. It seems like God's got this fixed plan, and Proverbs says that you know, the outcome of casting lots is in the hand of the Lord. And It seems like there's this fixed plan that, that's going to take place no matter what. So doesn't God have a plan that takes place no matter what? And if that's the case, really, does our free will and our activity really make that much a difference in, the, in outcomes? And... Another question is, is God functioning on his little faith plan? And the world is a whole different place because, of, because we might be like the people of Nazareth and we, we're underselling Jesus in our own hearts and minds and we've just kind of grown accustomed to that and so we just don't expect anything from God. We're going to go to heaven. I mean, we believe in Jesus. We're committed and we love him. We die for him, but we don't really expect him to do anything much. Well, let's walk through a few of those questions. First, we all likely stumble over Jesus in some way. That word scandalizo my or scandalizo, the idea of stumbling there or being offended, their, their imperfect faith. Again, I would not assume the people of Nazareth were not Old Testament believers. I believe they knew the true God, but they could not get over Jesus. Now, hopefully over time, once he rose from the dead, they, hopefully they all became New Testament Christians in this salvation transition during that life of Christ era. I don't know that. But faith is not easy for any of us. Our hearts are conditioned by so many things. At the 2016 Isaac Asimov Memorial Debate, at the American Museum of Natural History, the question of whether or not the universe is a simulation was addressed. Listen to this. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was hosting the debate, said that he thinks the likelihood of the universe being a simulation may be very high. But he says he wouldn't be surprised if we were to find out somehow that someone else is responsible for our universe. Now, just to clue you in here, he's an atheist but he's saying someone else might be responsible for our universe. 
Tyson uses a thought experiment to imagine a life form that's as much smarter than us as we are than dogs, chimps, or other terrestrial mammals. What would we look like to them? We would be drooling, blithering idiots in their presence, he says. Whatever that being is, it very well might be able to create a simulation of a universe. Tyson goes on to say, and if that's the case, it's easy for me to imagine that everything in our lives is just the creation of some other entity for their entertainment, Tyson says. I'm saying the day we learn that it is true, I will be the only one in the room saying I'm not surprised. Now, we've had some science fiction movies that are sort of along these lines, right? The, wasn't the Keanu Reeves movie? What's that one? The Matrix, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of these, we're living in an alternate reality that somebody else is sort of pulling all the strings. Albert Moeller, commenting on this article, says, so a man who denies the very possibility of divine creation, think about that, he's an atheist, it can't be God. The, a man who denies the very possibility of the divine creation of the cosmos is here willing to entertain in public the idea that some higher species has merely created the entire cosmos as a simulation for that being's own entertainment. I can't believe in God, but I can believe aliens did this. I mean, how dumb is that? Forgive me for using that word, but how dumb is that? How blind our hearts that in our natural human state we would say some higher power has created this but I must ignore the evidence of God and he's a smart dude we may not agree with him but he's a smart dude see faith is hard for so many no matter what the evidence says now, I'm not talking about blind faith. I'm not one of those blind faith people. I'm not talking about faith without a basis of reason. I'm talking about reasonable faith that looks at the evidence and believes God is the ultimate answer. That there must be something that caused things to be put into existence, a first cause. That when you look at the complexity of the world around us, especially in life forms, that something must have caused that. When you look at the balance of the universe that keeps it all hanging together and not imploding or exploding in a way that draws us further from the sun and fries us in an instant, there must be something more than us. And to me, that's God. To me, it's reasonable faith. It's a reasonable step along with all of the evidence we have here. So I don't believe faith is blind. It's not just hard for the unbelieving, though. Faith is hard for all of us because you can believe this book and the general statements in this book and still struggle to have a real personal day-to-day -day faith in Jesus. And why is that? Why do I struggle with faith? Not believing in Jesus, but believing in what Jesus may do today. Why do you struggle with that? Well, I'm going to walk through a few reasons. One of them is just the culture, sort of the philosophical culture that we've been raised in, naturalism. Naturalism is sort of a part of the scientific mindset in modernity that looks for a natural cause for all phenomena. I mean, we're, we're schooled in this. You go through grade school, you go through science class, you, you believe in the scientific method, you believe in naturalism. There needs to be a cause that we can explain in all situations. 
We swim in that water philosophically. It's, it's who we are. It's how we prove things. So even me as a believer, if somebody, you know, gets on the prayer chain and said, whoa, you know, so-and-so was sick and now they're healed, even as a believer, here's where our minds naturally go. Well, did God heal them in answer to prayer or did they get healed because of the doctor and the medicine they were given? And that, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that's a result of sort of this naturalism and the scientific method, but it erodes the idea of what God does a little bit. Our struggle with biblical authority, this is a big one today. If you're young, this is probably going to be your great struggle in your generation. Well, we don't like what Jesus says. Well, we're okay with most of what Jesus says. We don't like the rest of what we see in the scriptures. You know, I can live with Jesus. I can't live with the Apostle Paul. I can live with the New Testament. I can't live with the Old. Take your pick. So we erode the authority of the Bible because there's this 2,000-year gap from when it was written and today. And so we struggle with the idea of whether the God of the Bible would say exactly the same thing if it was written today. And when we can't handle the fact that he might, we deconstruct the text and say, well, I'm going to create a God in my own image where he's just not quite as tough on things. We struggle with biblical authority. It's the culture we live in, in this pluralistic postmodern world. Or familiarity, familiarity. We're so used to Jesus that we're not moved by him. We don't see the Bible like we would the first time. I mean, here, here's an example. You go, Did you know that a few thousand years ago, God humbled the most significant military power on the planet, the nation of Egypt, when they had enslaved, you know, eventually a couple of million Hebrews or Jews, you know, they're, they're there, they're enslaved, and, and God wanted to free them, send them to the promised land, and as he did that, Egypt refused, and so God used a series of sort of natural disasters on steroids, turned the waters to blood, you know, did all kinds of things, a mass death of cattle and the firstborn, and some pretty nasty things, plagues, etc. and he humbled that nation, and we're like, yeah, cool. Cool, I remember hearing about that when I was five did you know that Jesus, the Son of God, walked this earth for three years? He healed all manner of diseases, leprosy, blindness. The lame could walk. And then ultimately he died and rose again. But, but, but look at what he did to prove who he was. He healed all manner of diseases, thousands and thousands and thousands of miracles. And we're like, oh, probably saved the province of Galilee a lot of money in their health care system. Big whoop. We, we're awfully familiar with Jesus. And it takes a lot for him to move us after a few decades. How about disappointment? And then the death of expectation. You know, I prayed for this over and over and over and over and over, and the person still died. Or I prayed for, for this over here that God would, would, would get me out of this situation, and he didn't. So I guess it just doesn't work. I believe in Jesus, but I don't have much of an expectation of him. Well, a lot of people felt that way, even who were next to Jesus, like John the Baptist, the one who was telling everyone Jesus was the Messiah, eventually was like sent a letter to Jesus while he's in prison because he didn't expect to be in prison if Jesus is the Messiah because righteousness is supposed to reign and evil is supposed to be punished. And here he is in prison. He sends Jesus a little note 
Um, are you really the one or should I be expecting somebody else? Signed, J.B. John the Baptist struggled with Jesus because of disappointment in life. Uh, who here is not there? I got a few things I'd like to share with Jesus. I just don't want the lightning to hit me after the conversation, so I kind of keep it to myself. I've been pretty disappointed with Jesus. Pretty disappointed. But he's God. Where else am I going to go? So disappointment. Bad theology. Last week I made the comment that most of the miracles of the Bible happen in pretty narrow historical epics. That's actually historically true. But where we shouldn't go from there is, well, then God doesn't do miracles. Well, that's where hyper-dispensationalists go. That's a, that's a form of theology. There are people who, who sort of segregate the Bible in these different epics, and, and then they bleed all the faith out of their religion just about. They still believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he's going to really do anything. If a miracle happened to them, they'd be like shocked. So sometimes it's our bad theology. But we stumble too. Next, God's plan is real, and so are the limits we create. This passage to me really challenges those who believe in a fixed future. And so people, I mean, the, the best way to describe that would be sort of the Calvinistic movement among evangelicalism, which is pretty significant, where everything is in God's plan and God sovereignly sort of governs it all. And that forces sort of everything to be fixed, though, because if everything's in God's plan, he sort of needs to be a causative agent to some degree. And so God sort of determined who's going to be saved and who isn't. It really doesn't do much good to really even obey because it's all fixed, but we're supposed to obey to glorify God, but your actions really don't make a difference. Free will is minimized. Like, that's a big percentage of Christians in North America that kind of believe part of that. I'm sure they would not appreciate the way I just described it, but prayer is simply participating with God and what he's already going to do. It doesn't really change anything. I, I, don't, I think this passage sort of flies in the face of that where Jesus is basically saying, I'd like to do more, but I can't find expectant, prayerful hearts, therefore I can't. So God has a plan. I don't doubt that. But I also don't doubt that we affect it. Both are true. You can figure out how to make all that work, you know, you're, you're going to be famous. One solution would be that there are parts of God's plan that are absolutely settled. And there are parts of God's plan that are unsettled. That's one solution. That's the way I view it. Next, do the things, do the things that reflect faith and significant expectations of God in our world. Do those things. I watched a movie recently that I can recommend. I can give it the five-star pastoral approval. It's not as exciting as Ramble, one, two, three, four, five, or six or Rocky, one through 10, but it is nonetheless more biblical, and I can recommend it. And it's called I Still Believe. It's about the life of Jeremy Camp. Jeremy Camp is a famous contemporary singer, sold, I think, millions of albums at this point. When he was in college, he met his future wife, and she had cancer at some point even then. He married her in that condition, and he believed God was going to perform a miracle. I am absolutely wrecking the movie for you. And God healed her. She was going in for surgery, and they couldn't find cancer. And God healed her in answer to prayer. It was a miracle. 
Eventually she died, came back, but God had healed her. I have a cousin. His name was Ricky. He was traveling from, I believe, the Seattle area to, I believe, Indianapolis. His whole cavity, uh, chest cavity, stomach area was just filled with cancer. Could hardly eat because the tumors were so large. Tough guy, truck driver. He got to Indianapolis and he had no cancer. A lot of people were praying for Ricky. God healed him. I had a worship pastor at a former church who had MS symptoms to the point where he could not walk to his mailbox easily. And we prayed for him and anointed him with oil as God commands the elders in New Testament churches to do. And he was symptom-free after that for the next, I don't know, 20, 25 years, I think, to this day. In my mind, God healed him. God's not out of that business. Jesus said, pray and don't give up. Ask, seek, knock. Those are present tense verbs. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Don't give up. Pray and don't faint. Be a person who believes that Jesus wants to do more than we have seen yet in our lives. In the lives of those around us, in the lives of those that he wants to touch and reach with his grace. Do those things. Don't make Jesus walk away from us thinking, really? Really? They ask for so little. I don't know what I can do here. Let's not forget who he is. God, we thank you for your word. And I am convicted by this. Because I feel like I am one of those people in Nazareth so many times underestimating not who you are, but what you are willing to do in our present world and in my life and in our church and in the world around us that is increasingly walking further from you. But you're God, and you want to use us, and you want to move, and you want your kingdom to expand. Those are things that are very clear in your word. And I pray that you would help us to be engaged in the things that connect us to you by faith, that we would pray, that we would reach out, that we would pray as we reach out, that you would reach the lives of those around us, that you would do miracles in our lives when we see somebody who's, who's dying. Let us not just assume that it's the end, but let us pray and hope that at times we'll be gracious and merciful and change our situation that seems that it can't be changed. Don't let us be people without faith. Convict us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.